From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Alex Zaharoff-Royt and Talkin' Tech on today's News Talk TNT. Well, thank you for joining me for the third episode of Talking Tech with Alex Zaharovoid. It's so exciting to be here and to share the latest tech news, reviews, interviews, and views with a global audience. Now, today we're going to have Armin Sadegi. He's the co-founder of Project Manda. We're going to learn about how this company can remove the drudgery of meetings, which we've all been part of, too many of them, with AI and more. And we're also going to be chatting with Elliot Dellis. He is the chief realist and CEO at Frenesis Security. Yeah, so we'll be talking to Armin at 10 past the hour and Elliot at 30 past the hour. But first, let's look at some of the latest tech news. Now, if you have a Google 8, uh, Pixel 8 or a Pixel 8 Pro or one of the brand new Samsung S24 models, which have uh, the Samsungs have just come onto the market. A few people I know have been receiving them, even though they're not actually meant to go out uh, to the public for another couple of days yet. But they've got this new Google Circle to Search feature. So here's where you put your finger on the home button, either the little square or the little white line. You see this little white uh, shimmering up and down the screen. And then it tells you, you can circle anything that you're looking at. So you're on a video, you're on an X post, you're on you're in a social media message, uh, you're looking at something online and you can just hold down that home button, see the screen shimmer, and then with your finger or a stylus, draw a circle around whatever it is you would like to search for. So no more having to describe something. It's a visual search. And with Google Lens, you'd have to hold one phone in front of another phone. And it was all fiddly. This is much more direct. So this is something we'll hopefully see uh, going to many more phones. But at the moment, it's an exclusive for the Galaxy S24 series and Google Pixel 8 and 8 Pro. And I've been using it. And it's a great little feature. I'm sure it'll be more widely available soon. But if you've got one of those two devices, try it out. Lots of fun. Now, uh, other technology news from this week. We also have uh, the Apple Vision Pro, which we've spoken about for the last couple of weeks, finally going on sale. So this is now available, $3,500 in the US. You can see uh, Tim Cook, who is wearing it on the cover of Vanity Fair. You can see a number of reviews from uh, MKBHD, iJustine, a bunch of people in the States where the Vision Pro is on sale. There's now 600 Vision Pro specific apps available and over a million apps from the iPhone and iPad worlds that will run natively on Vision Pro. And uh, there's already videos online. If you go to X and you just type in Vision Pro in the search box, you can see videos of people who in front of them have got these virtual decks. They're spinning disks and they're tweaking things and they're, they're being a DJ. And then they're showing what it looks like from the other viewpoint where someone's filming them and they're just doing stuff in the air, you know, <laughs> but they're interacting with the augmented reality world, which we'll soon all take for granted. And in fact, soon you will need to have your glasses on to see things, directions and all sorts of information that just is not there in the real world. You won't be able to live the modern life without being plugged into both the real world and the digital world at the same time. So that is really quite exciting stuff. Now, we also had Neuralink, the, the new chip from Elon Musk that has finally been installed into a human being. They had FDA approval to do that last year. They did it previously with chimpanzees. One was playing Pong with one of the very first tests. One of the chimpanzees died, bit of a scandal. Uh, but the first human has had this installed. Elon Musk was talking about it on 
uh, X, he was talking about increased uh, neural spike activity, nothing to do with the spike protein from COVID shot. These are the neurons that are in your brain that communicate the little uh, organic brain chips that we have floating around there that uh, make our brains work. And there was increased activity. And he's talking about this being called telepathy and people being able to control phones and computers with other devices. Imagine if Stephen Hawking could just think to type was one of the things he was talking about. And look, there is the potential that uh, somebody will want to do a Bradley Cooper from the movie Limitless and have this implanted instead of taking a drug to be able to uh, think at the speed of light, to you know look at something and remember it instantly, to, to gain some sort of advantage. That is definitely going to be something that people will want. Uh, but at the beginning, it's for people who've got locked-in syndrome or dementia or they're having some sort of other issues that cause them to require technology. And at the moment, of course, as we we're saying, it's just going to be for people with these sorts of medical issues, but it won't be too long before you might see that it's not your kid wanting the latest iPhone, Samsung Galaxy S24 or Vision Pro. They're going to want the latest brain chip so they can be just as advanced as their friends at school. And look, personally, I would prefer my wireless brain interface, sorry, my brain interface to be wireless. I don't really want to have a chip implanted, or at least not for the next 20 or so generations until the tech is really super intelligent. But by then we should be able to put some little sensor just on our sort of temple and wirelessly get all the same benefits. I mean, look, we'll see. Elon Musk is the one who's doing it first. Uh, so we're just going to have to wait and see uh, how that goes. But uh, so far, everything is touched has pretty much turned to uh, to gold. So I think uh, this will be a great endeavor too. Japan has, the Japanese have finally given up on 3.5 inch floppy disks for various uh, government uh, requirements. You, you had to submit things on floppy disk, even on CDs, even mini disk. So that is now no longer the case. Apple has also delayed its uh, car until 2028. They want to make it simpler. But look, it's now time to have a chat with Armin Sodegi. He is the co-founder of Project Manda. This is an Aussie tech innovation that is designed to boost meeting productivity and employee well-being, and it's doing so with the help of AI, one of the topics that we cover here on Talking Tech with Alex Zahra-Royd. So, Armin, welcome to TNTradio.live. Thank you so much, Alex, and thanks for having me here. Look, we all know the drudgery of uh, time-consuming and unproductive meetings. They sort of zoomed into the stratosphere with the advent of Zoom in the pandemic. So what is the problem that you and your co-founders saw and what is the solution that you have created? I mean, you sort of touched on it, right, with with work from home and uh, all, all the, the pandemic stuff. And even before that, meetings were just, you know, going up and up. And because of COVID, we've had even more meetings. And we, we know from research that bad meetings often relate to um, unengaged employees. They relate to people being stressed out and just unhappy with their work. And we, you know, I've personally felt this in many workplaces where I've worked, we've all felt it. We've all done the six hours of back-to-back -back meetings that, that destroy you. And I really just wanted to work on that problem and see if I could, I could help businesses. And what we wanted to try and do is a bit different. We wanted to look at the data organizations already have. So there's a plethora of data every business has around all its historic calendar activity, all the internal activity of employees, whether they accept, decline, change meetings, cancel last minute, book in something so that they wreck your day or not. All these things happen and it's all sitting there. So we wanted to uh, look at that data and empower organizations to pull out insights from there uh, marry that with research around best practices for meetings, what works, what doesn't, 
and give them good, good insights of actionable things they can do to make their organization's meeting culture better. And we wanted to deliver that not through new tooling and new complex software, but through AI and natural language interfaces. So they can directly just, you know, you can have a chat to the bot directly and it can help you and it can be very familiar and intuitive. I've often heard it said that this meeting should have just been an email and uh, that whole natural language interface, the way that we can just now talk to chat GPT on the phone and actually have it respond back to us in a way that seems extremely human and in a way that is generationally vastly better than the attempts people have made to chat with Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa. I mean, this is the magic of AI. And, and I'm assuming that your solution, although it may have been technically possible in some way 10 years ago, it just would have been vastly clunkier, right? Clunkier and also pretty much unfeasible. It would have been, you, you know, you couldn't have done this 10 years ago. Even, yeah. I'd say even three years ago, two years ago, you couldn't have done this. It, there's there's some things we're working on now that only have really come to light in, in the last year, year and a half. Uh, as an example, um, not only the natural language interfaces that are far uh, far better now than they were before but there's there's also a lot of um, semantic interpretation that these LLMs can do on you know simple things like the title of a meeting so being able to not just look at the words but actually understand the meaning of it the semantic intent of that thing and then group group things together and say hey all these meetings are about this subject and and we have some high confidence that that's true um, and so that that's that's been really powerful. Now, we have programs like uh, Zoom that can plug into otter.ai that can transcribe everything that's happening in a meeting. Uh, you can actually question the meeting if you've come in late. You can question the notes to say, hey, what did I miss out on? What were the most important points? And then you can get an automatically generated summary. So do you do the same sorts of things there or do you rely on the fact that pretty much every platform now has this and you're actually working on higher level problems? Exactly. I, I suspect you know those those types of tooling uh, features will exist in every platform. Zoom's going to have it. Teams, they'll, they'll all they'll all have it pretty soon. You'll be able to get summaries. You'll be able to see what you missed out on. Uh, I don't want to look at that. What we want to look at is organization level uh, activity. So let's zoom out a bit. Let's look at the whole organization, not at one meeting, but let's look at the ten thousand meetings that happened in the last few quarters, and let's look at the trends. Look at what's changed. And look at what you can do better. And, and maybe what, what we've actually seen in some of the data is often when you look at the whole organization, you can spot issues in certain areas. You can look at a certain department or a certain team that is doing something better that others can learn from or, or vice versa. And so we want to look at the whole organization and we want to provide a tooling platform that they can use to, to make their meeting culture better holistically. So what else does Project Manager do to really move the needle that people watching now, whether they're watching live or on the replay later, uh, you know, they can talk to their colleagues and say, wow, we've got to get this in our system, in our uh, organization, in our company, because if we can do this, this and this, what are the, sort of the top three things that we're going to blow people away? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for, for example, one thing I'm really excited about, and, and this came again out of uh, the pain I felt directly, right, uh, is how do you know because meetings are good. We don't, we're not trying to get rid of meetings. We have to have meetings. We have to communicate. But how do you know what's good and like how much is good? So if there's a certain type of thing you're doing, let's say you're doing a project kickoff or some sort of review meeting periodically, uh, what's a good amount of that to do? And if you look at a whole whole business, 
how you know what sort of metrics are good or bad. And so we think what's uh, what's really going to be you know, move the needle there is benchmarking. We think having benchmarks that companies can compare themselves to, just like every other type of industry benchmark, is going to be really really powerful. Um, so that's that's one area I'm really excited about. Um, there's a lot of lot of other things. We think feedback is going to be fantastic. So you know we get feedback for our products. You know you'll you'll make a service, you'll 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 build a product and try and get feedback for it. But why aren't we getting feedback for our interactions to make those better? So what have been some, I mean, I always think a company's uh, staff, oh, sorry, a company's users are the company's best R&D department. So have there been any features that people have said, hey, we're using your uh, service, Project Manda, but we wish you could do this, or we wish you could do that. Have you already added some features from you know popular customer demand? Absolutely. That's a great question. It reminds me of something else. So uh, we didn't think we would do this, but when uh, one of our early customers, it turned out when we were looking through their data, they actually had a really big recurring meeting problem in that a lot in their case, it was over 50% of all their company's meetings were recurring. So before the year had even started, on the 1st of January, they'd booked in half of their meetings, which were a significant amount of time spent. Um, and so you, you, we looked at these meetings and we realized a lot of these recurring meetings were old, stale, you know, the organizer had left the organization, the agenda is no longer appropriate, the attendee list started out with the right four people, but now there's 14 people and they're the wrong people. Um, so we've actually, one feature we built is a systematic review tool. And the goal there is to help businesses at scale review all their recurring meetings periodically. And again, this is all delivered through a natural language AI uh, tool so that, you know, on your chat tool, uh, the program will talk talk to you and say, hey, Alex, you've got this recurring meeting you've organized. It seems to cost this much money and have all these people, It's this, but there's issues with it. Let's review it. It's been a while. Let's take a couple minutes and it will walk you through a review and try and make that better. And it will do that at scale with everyone. And it's a bit of software, right? So you don't have to feel bad because it's it's AI software. You don't have to feel bad that your manager is telling you, telling you off because you're not doing your job right or you're not managing these meetings well. You can just work yeah. with the software to do a better job. So how much, I mean, every organization is different. They've got different uh, places that they're meeting at and different levels of staff. But what is sort of an average cost of a meeting? How much wastage is there across an organization across an entire year? I mean, what sort of savings can people expect by using Project Manda? Yeah, so there's uh, the, the data varies between businesses, but we've seen, you know, it's anywhere between at the low end, maybe 10%, 15%. At the high end, 40 50% of meeting time is just completely unproductive. Um, and so, you know, as an example, one organization we were working with recently, um, thousand person organization, and out of a thousand people, the time saving that they could get out of just implementing the system and, and just implementing the top few suggestions that the system get, you know, comes with uh, was in the order of 50 FTEs. So 50 people's time back out of a thousand. That's, that's an incredible saving when people's salary is often the biggest expense for a business. So, yeah. So what other tools does Project Manda integrate with? Does it have an API? Does it talk to other APIs? What's the story there? Yeah, so at the moment, we've built an integration with Google Calendar and with Slack for chat. Mm -hmm. uh, but the way it's designed, it's going to be quite extensible to every other platform. We've got others waiting for um, Outlook. So that's going to be next uh, for this coming quarter. Uh, and we'll build out some more. Over time, I think absolutely the, the, the platform itself will have an API. So organizations can essentially retrieve their calendar insights from the Project Manda platform. 
And uh, what is the AI engine that you're using in the background to parallel this? Have you used OpenAI's ChatGPT, for example, or are you building your own? Really good question. Uh, oddly, everyone wants to know because it's just so so trendy these days to find out what, what's being used, right? So we're using OpenAI right now. Uh, we've tried a few. Uh, I could talk about that for hours, the pros and cons. That's a whole subject. It's really quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but we're using a, a microagent architecture within OpenAI. So there's there's a variety of assistants that help with different aspects of the of the service, but they portray themselves essentially as one assistant. So in the yeah. tool, you see one one little bot, but under the hood, there's many, many different bots or, orchestrating the, the answers to, to help you. Um, and have we looked at our own? Yes, uh, I think there's, there's actually quite a, a compelling case not to use uh, uh, you know, an open AI chat GPT type solution that's very broad, but to use a very limited, super, super limited uh, AI. That's one of the reasons we even use the, the micro agent architecture. This is where every assistant agent only knows a little bit. It doesn't know about everything. It just knows about mm -hmm. one thing. So for example, we might have an assistant that just helps you collect feedback for a meeting. That's all it does. It doesn't really know how to do anything else. And it's really important to do that so that they don't get confused and misunderstand what you're trying to trying to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, you've got the issue where there's data sovereignty. People don't want the data to be leaking. They don't want their data to be trading other people from other companies about what it is that you're doing. And uh, the other question is uh, then because you're using OpenAI's ChatGPT, I mean, there must be generative AI uh, involved in giving you these answers because that's the big trend of last year and this year going forward. 100%. So generative AI is a big part of it for us. That That's actually mostly around the interaction. So every interaction you have when you're talking to the bot and it's talking to you, uh, it's using that engine to to generate the text. And it's always a bit different. It's always a bit quirky. It tries, it's got a bit of personality that we've injected in there and it makes the interaction fun and, and natural. It's like, it just feels like you're talking to a, a sort of a person. So. That, that's that's really interesting. So how do you think AI will evolve over the next, uh, I mean, even a couple of months, we're going to have ChatGPT5, Google's uh, Bard Ultra, we're going to have Grok 1.5, uh, Elon Musk, uh, sorry, well, I'd say Elon Musk, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know why anyone, why anyone trusts him, but he's going to have the open source, uh, you know, LLM from Meta. So, yeah. uh, I mean, th this is going to supercharge Project Manda and AI in general even further, isn't it? 100%. And there's there's actually a whole host of open source models that are performing incredibly well. Some of yeah. these are good enough to even run on your phone. Like literally, yeah. you can you can run them locally. Um, uh, I think what's going to happen, What my, my view is that a bunch of the foundational model infrastructure will just become a commodity. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to use a variety of different ones for very, very cheap. Um, and yeah. so you, you'll see a lot more integration. I mean, not just with calendars, but with every every bit of tooling and software we have in the world, which is everything everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it'll just become cheaper and easier and better. Um, yeah. I, I actually personally think open source models will probably win in the end. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of it will be local. I, I don't anticipate these yeah. centralized solutions running. And I don't, I sort of want to see a world where it's local. I don't, I don't want all my data elsewhere. I want it all on my device uh, for my own self. And yeah. You out. want it to learn from you. You don't want it to be have information injected by by governments or government departments that, that are going to give edicts on misinformation or disinformation, which you oh, may not agree with. And I mean, you know a technology is successful when you don't have to think about it anymore. I mean, nobody 
thinks about the power when they flick on the light switch, mm -hmm. except for when it doesn't work, when there's an outage. Right. <laughs> and uh, so it's exactly the same. I mean, the world of Star Wars, uh, robots are just everywhere. No one thinks about it. And in the world of Star Trek, I mean, that natural language interface and the iPads and the little uh, computers that the were on the, the, the yeah. you know, the communicators. I mean, the, the humane pin is now here. We've got the goggles now. I mean, all of these things are just becoming, well, all our sci-fi dreams are coming true, aren't they? hundred percent. And and my prediction here is I think we're going to have more and more agents that will have more and more software agents that, you know, and what are they like AI is a fuzzy line. It's just more sophisticated software, yeah. but I suspect, uh, and I hope that more of it will be working for us on our own terms mm -hmm. uh, and locally, locally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when we, wherever you choose to put it yeah. uh, and you'll have control over your data. I mean, a lot of the ways we're building project Manda, we put a lot of thought into uh, data security and privacy. So we've built, I mean, we can talk at length about that, but yeah. we've got a lot of um, um, solutions around uh, keeping that private so that the data is not elsewhere. Um, but it's just incredibly important. And I, I don't think the data should be used to, you know, give away free to these large organizations to monetize. Yeah. So on the topic of money, what does it cost on average or in general for a company to take Project Mandarin on? And how difficult is it for that company to implement? You know, what's a an onboarding journey in a nutshell? Yeah, so uh, implementation is pretty easy. Uh, it's a couple of buttons with OAuth for your IT guy to connect um, and then a few settings you can choose. Right now, because we're still fairly early, we're very, very young, we're doing a uh, sort of essentially a white glove implementation mm -hmm. where uh, the me and the team are very involved in every customer that is onboarded. So if anyone's interested, they can reach out, we can we can work with them. The costing is, is very affordable. I think we've got subscriptions from uh, eight to eight to 15 or so dollars uh, per user per month. Um, so that you know, that scales with the size of the organization, and um, it should be very affordable. And hopefully, um, everyone can benefit. Now you talked about using Google Calendar and Slack as some of the uh, the things you plug into, and that uh, Outlook was coming in the next quarter. What else is on the roadmap uh, that uh, you'd like to deliver, and that customers are asking for? Yeah. Okay. What else is on the roadmap? Um, I, I, so the big one I'm excited about is more and more benchmarking. I think I'm mm -hmm. really excited about uh, about that. Um, I think within five years, I think every organization is going to uh, not just compare departments and look at what they can do to improve their performance, but even use it as a, as a hiring tactic and say, hey, look at our business, look at how good we are in terms of our meeting culture compared to others in the industry. You should come work with us, right? Yeah. yeah and look at, look at how good, how happy our people are, how well they communicate. Communication is just so important inside any organization. And so I'm just really excited about uh, benchmarks. I think that's gonna be a really important space. Um, and I think that we've got an endless list of 50,000 other things we're going to do with uh, more insights and uh, better tooling to help businesses improve meeting culture. So, And can you tell us about some of the customers in the various industries that you're already working with? And are your customers just in Australia or do you now have global customers? Yeah, so uh, we've got, uh, I think we've got users all over the world. Um, there's, there's hundreds of people around the world trying it out. Um, our first customers, the paying customers, are all here in Australia. That's just mm -hmm. because where we started. Um, but the you know, business is small to large. So we've got everything from a 50-person little startup um, to uh, you know, a scaling prop tech business to a large enterprise like Salesforce. And 
uh, everything in between. Like meet, meetings and meeting culture are just such a prevalent problem that every modern business um, can benefit from from the tooling. So it's just a yeah. mix, mix of everything. And this is not the first business you've been involved with. You actually took Rate My Agent uh, in Australia and put it onto the stock market, right? That was actually my business founder, my business partner, my co-founder Ed. Um, yeah, it's a great guy. He was um, one of the co-founders of Rate My Agent, and yeah, and they listed that on on the ASX a number of years ago. And and you're former from formerly Microsoft, and yeah, so I'm, I used to work at Microsoft over in Seattle, and uh, then my family got me to move back to Australia, which is great fun. <laughs> um, and uh, I've I've worked in many different industries, uh, a lot of time in banking, a lot of time in. Uh, financial modeling, and uh, most recently in consulting. So I did a lot of uh, sort of software development work. You, with, you've seen the pain points that you wanted to solve for yourself. I've absolutely seen all these pain points. You know, the, the big thing is companies would come to me and say, oh, I mean, my my team can't deliver. They're stuck on this project for three months. They're not getting yeah. it done. This is This is taking so much longer. What's going on? What can I do to make it better? And there's just so many, so many things it can be. But a lot of the time it boils down to, you're not communicating very well. Like there's there's some communication issues in that team and often between teams, there might be some structural organizational challenges and and that's that's hampering you. So we really think just there's many issues, but meetings are a big part of that. So I'm just really passionate about making that. Better. Well, yeah. Well, the website is projectmanda.com. What's your final message to the people watching and listening? Yeah, um, uh, yes, that's right. So if anyone's interested to learn more, projectmanda.com, uh, and, you know, thank you so much, Alex, for having me on. Really excited and really excited to learn about what other businesses have tried with meetings. So feel free to get in touch if anyone's interested. Well, Armin Sadegi, the co-founder of Project Manda, thank you very much for your time. I hope we can speak again in the future. And uh, just uh, before we go to a, so yeah, thank you very much. And before we go to a break, I just wanted to say that last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London, lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT. See you after this break. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right mind goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk. TNT.
Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Listen. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Thank you for joining me again on Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov right here on TNTradio.live. Now, if you missed your favorite TNT show or interview, simply, uh, well, simply listen or watch it when you want, whenever you want. Just visit episodes on the TNT Radio website, on Rumble, on BitChute, or brighteon.com. We are also on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart and tune in. So uh, there is no reason to miss out on anything on today's News Talk TNT. And now it's time for my second interview. I'm joined by Elliot Dellis. He is the CEO of Australian but world-class cybersecurity company, Phronesis Security, with Elliot, Elliot cleverly styling himself as a chief realist. Welcome to TNTradio.live. Good to be here, Alex. Thanks for taking the time. Now, Elliot, despite a plethora of cybersecurity companies out there and cybersecurity teams uh, within companies, the news of ransomware attacks, of password leaks, of hacks of major companies, government departments, and more are regularly featuring on the news. So what is your rap on the cyber war being waged globally? I think the predominant feature of the cyber war is an ongoing swing of the pendulum in favour of the defender and the attacker. Um, there's three key reasons why this has been a perennial feature in cybersecurity. The first is organisations extract value from data by sharing it and using it. So there's always this tension between how do you extract value from the data and make sure that the right people have access to it while also keeping it under lock and key. Secondly, there is an inherent imbalance between the attacker and the defender. The attacker only needs to get it right once, whereas the defender has to get it right 100% of the time to prevent a breach. Mm. And thirdly as well, a really important part of cybersecurity is it's all about tech. And over the last 20 years, we've seen an incredible pace of change in technology. So every time we've developed a new defensive technology, a new way of catching hackers, uh, hackers out there are spending just as much time and energy finding new ways to bypass those controls and, and deceive people and trick people into clicking links or whatever it might be. And I think we're going to continue to see this. And there's two good examples of that recently. The first is ransomware, right? Traditional ransomware was kind of like smash and grab, get in, cause the damage, extort and get out. And then as teams start to get better and better at detecting this, we start to see things like initial access broken and second and third party extortion. Uh, and then, of course, these new malicious decryption companies that come along and pretend that they're here to help you when actually they're just an, uh, you know, an offshoot of one of these ransomware as a service gangs. Mm -hmm. But we also see this with password security, for example. You know, we used to have short, simple passwords that then started to get uh, defeated by dictionary attacks. So we started to build longer, complex passwords, and then attackers came up with rainbow tables. So we introduced MFA, and now we see some really clever MFA bypasses, things like evil proxy, or even just user fatigue, where you just get slammed with a notification again and again, so you go, I just don't want to see it anymore. Click it, make it go away. Yeah. If it works, it works. And this is something that is going to be a perennial feature of the cyber conflict. Now, one of the things we see uh, around about this time of the year from late December to, to about now is predictions of how the year is going to, uh, you know, 
roll out. Now, just yesterday on LinkedIn, you had a uh, a top 10 list of cybersecurity predictions for 2024. So, uh, you know, anyone can type Elliot Dallas into LinkedIn to read them all. But what is the overall summary and what are the top three that uh, we can talk about right now? Well, look, in Australia, one of the big things that we've seen is a lot of focus on privacy legislation. Uh, so, for example, in 2018, the European Parliament passed GDPR, which really set the gold standard for data protection and privacy. And one of the big sticks and the carrots and the sticks of GDPR was making sure that organisations would be held to account through regulatory fines if they did the wrong thing. Um, Australia used to have actually one of the lowest fines in the world for a privacy breach at a cap of only 2.2 million. And last year, we saw that cap raised to $50 million. Uh, and now off a couple of years of some really severe incidents, one of the big things I think that organisations in Australia, but realistically around the world are going to have to deal with, is how do you manage a corporate culture where the expectation is that if I entrust my data to you as an organisation, it's on you to know where it's stored, who has access to it. And if I request copies of my information, you know the right people to ask to retrieve it. Most importantly as well, one of the big things that we're seeing that is becoming an increasing area of focus, especially in Australia, is the right to be forgotten. If you mm. no longer need access to my data anymore, how do I have confidence that you're going to get rid of it? And for a lot of organisations that have these large, complex digital estates, that can actually be a pretty daunting question. So I think we're going to see an increasing cultural shift towards organisations having an expectation put upon them that they know exactly where that data is stored and how to get rid of it if it's no longer required. Yeah. Now, I want to get a couple more from you, but... How is AI being used by cyber criminals to defeat protections? You already mentioned evil proxy and some of the ways to defeat MFA or multi-factor authentication, which is quite scary because that's the whole purpose of multi-factor authentication, multiple ways of proving who you are. And then so, you know, how are you and others using AI to defeat the bad guys? Well, look, AI machine learning more broadly is not new in the world of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, heuristic antivirus has been using it for a long time. That being said, Generative AI using these huge data sets is something that's potentially going to be transformative. So things where I think in the next year we're going to see some really uh, potentially scary developments, for example, is in the development of deepfake audio and video. You know, for common yeah. attack vectors like business email compromise and password reset attacks, what do you do when you live in a world where if you get a phone call or if you receive a video call, it looks like me, it sounds like me, but it might be the product of a generative AI tool, that is a really difficult problem to solve. So I think leveraging the power of these AI tools for social engineering attacks is something where we're going to see attackers really starting to get a bit of an advantage. On the defensive side, I think we're going to see a lot more sophistication around things like anomaly detection and sentiment analysis, being able to do things like detect uh, deprecated accounts that are no longer required and maintaining more visibility of that digital estate. But I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of 2024, a lot of cybersecurity is attackers and defenders launching their respective AI tools at each other and just trying to be one step ahead. Yeah, that sounds very much like what it's going to be like. So what is your second big prediction for 2024? So my second big prediction on the AI theme really relates to the massive rush that organisations have currently been having to get on board with AI. So if we cast our mind back to, say, 2017, 2018, there was the great cloud migration. Every organisation under the sun was doing its cloud migration strategy. We want to get away from on-prem infrastructure. Cloud is going to be the solution to all of our problems. So then what did we see over the next few years? 
unauthenticated S3 buckets getting compromised, misconfigured cloud instances, lots of shadow cloud IT infrastructure, because organizations didn't really put the time in to plan what that meant in the long term. Mm -hmm. I think there's a real risk that we'll see the same thing when it comes to AI adoption. Organizations not providing users with adequate guidance about what they can or they can't put into these large language models or not using large language models that are appropriate for their data sovereignty or privacy requirements, mm -hmm. or simply just not knowing where that data is going. And I think in 2024, we may well see the first compromise of a large AI platform provider. And when that happens, it might be a bit of a wake up call to everyone that's jumped on the bandwagon that, hey, mm -hmm. we might want to think about the security here. Because I mean, look, look let's be honest, there is a real risk of being, get le uh, being left behind. And I think a lot of organizations at the moment are so focused on wanting to keep up uh, that it might take a bit of a wake up call to go, actually, maybe we should slow down and consider the security uh, implications of doing this. Yes, taking a breath, slowing down, judging what, where you're going, what you're doing. Never bad advice. That's Always sure. good advice. <laughs> now, you've got seven other predictions, but what's the third one that you want to highlight today? I think the third one that I'd like to talk about is the cyber poverty line. So the cyber poverty line is an idea that, you know, cybersecurity has traditionally been sort of defined by the haves and the have-nots. So, for example, in Australia, the Australian Signals Directorate produced some data recently that indicated that it was actually medium-sized businesses that were the most severely impacted by breaches. And there's some fairly simple logic behind that. If you're an attacker, you want to be able to get a good payoff for the time and energy you put into compromising an organisation. So you want an organisation that's large enough that they can afford to pay a ransom if you get in. On the other hand, if your organization isn't large enough to be able to afford a dedicated cybersecurity team or regular engagement consultants, it can be really difficult to get that balance right. So for those organizations that sit in that Goldilocks zone of being large enough to be a juicy target, but not mm -hmm. large enough to be able to invest heavily in cybersecurity, they have a real risk of falling behind as the attackers get more and more sophisticated. We also see a similar issue, for example, with not-for-profits. So the expectation for most people that donate to a not-for-profit is, you know, for every dollar I donate, I want to see, you know, it all going to the programs that they do, which makes sense. You know, if you donate money to a charity, you want to have confidence that there's going to be a real impact off the back of that. The problem is that for a lot of these not-for-profits, they handle very sensitive information. They have to share this information sometimes with a wide variety of stakeholders, but they also have to run off, you know, the smell of an oily rag. So mm. being able to put the time and the money aside to be able to improve their cybersecurity posture can be a really serious issue. And uh, so, for example, in Australia, the 2030 strategy, the first shield is about making sure that small and medium businesses don't fall behind. But what we really need to seriously consider is, well, who's going to foot the bill for that? And how are we going to make sure that we're providing real tangible guidance to these organisations and not just providing another list of controls and regulatory obligations they're going to struggle to be able to implement? Now, you mentioned before that people had uh, insecure S3 Amazon buckets and there were deprecated accounts that uh, people were using. But when an organization, a business or a government or department contacts you, you know, what are the most uh, common things that you see in the security audits that people are just missing out on, not, you know, not really paying attention to and, and not taking care of, thus necessitating your services? Yeah, well, look, we work with organisations of all shapes and sizes across all different industries, but there's usually some common themes. 
The first one I would say is a poor risk management culture. And what I mean by that is, you know, every organization under the sun has done a risk assessment at some point, but a lot of organizations kind of miss the point of why we do risk assessments. I often say the point of doing a risk assessment is to make sure that you're not only spending $10,000 on a $100,000 problem and you're not wasting $100,000 on a $10,000 problem. And this is really what a good mature risk management practice is about. It's about making sure you're getting the best possible return on investment from your security budget. So we work quite closely with organizations to make sure that they're spending their time, their money, their energy on those issues that are most likely to cause a security incident in the next six to 12 months and stop worrying about all the little things that actually can wait their turn fundamentally. Uh, the second one that we see a lot of is just a lack of visibility of the environment. Uh, going back to what I was saying before around, you know, managing the digital estate. If you go to an organization, you say, what data do you hold? Where do you store it? Who has access to it? And how do you have confidence that if someone was to come and say, I want my data purged, you know how to do it it can actually be quite a difficult problem to solve. And this is also true when it comes to just asset management more broadly. A lot of organizations understand the importance of vulnerability management, patching their infrastructure. But when it actually comes time to understanding where all that infrastructure is, especially for large enterprise organizations, there's often a lot of blind spots. So that's another area where for organizations large and small, we often work with them to make sure that they've got good visibility of their environment. So if a vulnerability does pop up, you identify it before the attacker. The third one that I'd say is a really common issue relates to governance. So if we're talking about risk management, we're talking about improving visibility of the estate. When you do find an issue, do people know who's accountable for getting it done? And you have a clear and actionable way of tracking it in the mid to long term. A lot of the time we work with organisations that have really passionate people, they've got great skills, great technology, they've got good processes in place, but actually just being able to make sure that people know who's responsible for what and you're not doing this thing when it comes time to remediation. Um, yeah. It's another issue that we often find ourselves uh, sort of guiding organizations through that process. Yeah. Now, as the CEO of a major security company, I'm imagining that yourself and your fellow executives and pretty much anyone in the organization would be the subject of attacks. You'd be a juicy target. So what sort of attacks have happened to you and how do you defend against those? Yeah, look, certainly we, we have targets in our heads. I mean, fundamentally, we face the exact same threats as any other organisation. Um, I think the thing that probably makes us a little different is because our organisation is, is composed of people who are very, very cybersecurity conscious. Uh, we do have an exceptional level of vigilism and, uh, you know, I have a very high degree of confidence that my staff are eternally on the lookout for attacks when they come in. That being said, we have an expectation and obviously our clients have an expectation that we have a zero tolerance for compromise. So we always have to be very, very cautious. So some of the measures that we put in place, for example, is we found that often when we're onboarding new staff, people will try to impersonate their managers to try and get new staff to click links, obviously assuming that the new staff haven't done their full onboarding yet. So we've actually introduced controls specifically to mitigate that sort of risk. And look, on a personal level, um, I've had two identity fraud attack attempts uh, against me over the last 12 months. One of them actually involved me ending up on the phone with the attacker as they were impersonating me. Uh, and the real lesson for me for that was, you know, even if you know everything that needs to be done, if you're a victim of one of these attacks, once your data's out there as a result of a data breach, there's actually not a whole lot you can do other than be ready to act when something goes wrong. Um, and so, look, when, when it comes to cybersecurity, we want to stay out of the headlines uh, for having a breach as much as any other organisation. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, I was buying something from someone on Gumtree today, and as I normally do, I'm showing them tips on how to use their smartphone better, whether it's an iPhone or an Android. And one of the things we looked at was when was the last time they did an update? Now, they had a Galaxy S20, so a slightly older device now, and they were on Android 11 with the last security update, the patch from January 1, 2020. So I said, that's already four years out of date. And we had a look and there was an update available to go to Android 12 from Android 11. And of course, we're now on Android 14. And what I've seen with Samsung devices in the past, and I don't know what it is like at this very second, but in the past, you know, you had to do one update, then you had to check again to do the next update and the next update. I mean, on the iPhones, it normally goes straight to the latest one. And it's probably like that on the latest Samsung devices as well. But how often do you see that, uh, you know, executives, business people, government, you know, people have out of date uh, smartphones and tablets or even out of date uh, you know windows and mac installations obviously it's very big for companies to patch their infrastructure and their computers but on a personal level those are pretty serious vectors of attack too absolutely look for organizations that use mdm solutions like intune um, it's fairly easy to maintain an up-to-date fleet of mobile devices where this gets complicated obviously is when you're talking about byod uh, because then if you're dealing with different operating systems different handsets you know it's very very common to have devices with a whole range of issues uh, which includes out-of-date operating systems so obviously as you've alluded to you know having uh, devices that aren't patched opens you up to vulnerabilities uh, and let's say for example in the finance sector one of the big issues is screen overlay trojans so that's something that's a major issue when it comes to mobile devices but I think the biggest issue when it comes to you know how enterprises manage their users use of mobile devices it's just that we're much more complacent when it comes to mobile devices. You know, we're so used to getting a message and clicking a link and we constantly have them in front. There's a degree of trust and familiarity yeah. that lets us lower our guard. And so, you know, we often find users will do things like download unsanctioned software that's often very leaky and collects and transmits a broad range of data from the device without your knowledge. Or we find people will connect to unsecured Wi-Fi networks or even sometimes put credentials into a site that otherwise, if they visited through a workstation or a laptop, they might just be a little more alert. So that's one of the main issues that we see when it comes to managing a fleet of mobile devices is just maintaining that same degree of alertness that you'd have when you're using you know, an enterprise laptop. Elliot, I have a couple of more questions for you, but we need to take a quick break. This is TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? 
Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Alex Zaharoff-Royt and Talkin' Tech on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for being with us here on a Saturday night or wherever you are around the world or watching live on uh, or watching on a replay. Now, uh, Elliot, uh, I've looked up what phrenesis means, but for those who are wondering, it isn't a clever wordplay on Game of Thrones. So <laughs> what does it mean and how did you decide to use this as your company name? Uh, so, look, I'm I'm a bit of a philosophy nerd, and phronesis is a concept from ancient Greek philosophy that roughly translates as practical wisdom. So the Greeks had this great idea that knowledge in and of itself is invaluable. It's how you apply knowledge that creates value. And for me, this is a beautiful analogy both for cybersecurity more broadly, but also our company's personal mission of cybersecurity for good. So in cybersecurity, like I alluded to earlier, we work with organizations that have, you know, really sophisticated technology, passionate people, well-developed policies and procedures. But the real challenge often is bringing all of these together to make sure that it's fit for purpose. So a lot of the time what we're doing is we're working with organisations to make sure they're communicating effectively with stakeholders, they're measuring and tracking risk, they're building pragmatic, achievable cybersecurity strategies. Because, you know, all of the knowledge is there, but we want to make sure they can apply it in the most meaningful and impactful way. And fundamentally, cybersecurity needs to be a business enabler and not getting in the way. So that's how you make sure that that wisdom is practical. Uh, the other side of this as well is we have a uh, mission which is what we call cybersecurity for good. And as part of this, we donate 10% of the company's profits to three amazing charities that do incredible work in Australia. And our view is, you know, when it comes to a lot of issues, say like climate change, maybe you believe in it, maybe you don't, but chances are you've heard of it. Uh, the time for awareness raising has more or less come and gone. What we need is immediate practical action uh, and our impact model of donating money to some of these really impactful charities. They're, they're some of the most impactful for a dollar in all of Australia. Yeah, um, that's what Phrenesis is all about. Sure. And is that part of the B Corp certification, which you were the first security company to achieve in Australia? Yeah, so the B Corp certification was a fantastic process for us, not only to be able to refine the model that we'd come up with, but actually identify a whole host of other ways that we could create impact. It's actually one of these things that I say to other business leaders, even if you don't intend on getting certified, just going through the process of filling out the B Corp roadmap and doing the, what they call the business impact assessment is a really, really cool process because you can spot all these opportunities to do good and create impact that come at no cost to the organisation, but just help you consider things that otherwise might have been a bit out of sight, out of mind. Uh, look, one example is uh, the Queensland government a few years ago produced a report called the Not Now, Not Ever report that was all about tackling domestic violence. And one of the key recommendations of this report was that uh, companies, private companies could create 
dedicated leave types for victims of domestic violence, which are discreet enough that, you know, it doesn't come up on the employment records or anything, but allows people to do things like attend court hearings or go and to police stations or whatever it is they have to do without having to use their personal leave. And for me personally, this was just simply an issue I wasn't aware of. But when I encountered this and then going through the B Corp process, it talked about, well, what measures do you have in place to support victims of domestic violence? I went, well, fantastic. We can adopt this very, very easily. And this is one of the reasons why I, I really am such a believer in B Corp, because it's just a way of being able to add a degree of um rigor and and an audit process to what you're trying to do to achieve impact that allowed us to not only go yes look what we we say we're doing is independently verified our impact model has been you know put put through the ringer but also it's given us an opportunity to find a whole bunch of other things that we can do that otherwise we might never have thought of and are you going to implement some sort of a generative ai component into your security dashboard that allows people to talk to the phrenesis dashboard as though it was a one of your staff and get a rundown of how the business is going security wise look we've been exploring different ways of using generative ai i'm a huge proponent of it um look i was using uh chat gpt the first week it came out and i thought wow yeah. this is going to be a game changer especially in the world of grc that being said I do believe in human beings. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that ChatGPT and other generative AI tools can be incredible productivity enhancers, but we really run the risk of, uh, I suppose, underestimating the value of a human being. So we're using generative AI tools to increase our productivity, but fundamentally, you know, our clients work with us because they want a human being with years of experience and appropriate qualifications mm -hmm. to be able to vet and validate information. Uh, and it's absolutely critical to us that we have a human being in that. So look, we're not gonna have a dashboard where we replace consultants with generative, uh, generative AI anytime soon, but we've certainly been looking at ways that we can adopt it to make, uh, you know, pass cost savings onto our clients. Well, Elliot Dellis, the CEO and Chief Realist of Phrenesis Security, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story with uh, the global audience of TNT Radio. And I look forward to uh, chatting again soon. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, if uh, there's a great new feature at TNT. And if you love a good documentary, then you'll love our special screenings, Uninterrupted Cinema. This is the new feature. features some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. So check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are better when you spend it with us on TNT News Talk, uh, TNT Radio. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes of the news, so a couple more things I wanted to briefly mention. Uh, Optus in Australia has unveiled new features to combat scams. They're blocking 2 million scam phone calls and 2.8 million scam SMS messages per week. And Vodafone and, Opti and Telstra, the other two big phone companies in, in Australia, are doing the same thing. And you can be sure that the phone companies in the US, in the UK, in Europe, and all, all the other places around the world are doing the same thing, because otherwise it will be totally inundated at all times with just non-stop spam calls, non-stop messages. I mean, too many of them leak through as it is, but the the you know those companies are trying very hard. Now, also in Australia, and I've seen this when I've been traveling from you know Los Angeles airport to visit different companies, you go on the freeway and there's no mobile coverage. It says SOS. And so what we have here in Australia is the federal government pumping $50 million into a program that is going to not only beef up the existing towers, but is going to have new towers built with coverage from all of in Australia, the three major providers. And so that's going to mean not just your emergency calls going through, 
but being able to get a stronger signal for voice calls and data. And I know that when I'm traveling between Sydney and Canberra, a couple of the big major cities in Australia, I normally have TNT radio playing in the background or some, you know, something else like a podcast. And often those things are being streamed live, although many of the podcasts are downloaded. But, you know, although you can download things and, and have them playing, I mean, we live in a connected world. We always want to be online. Now, one last thing before we have to go to the news very soon, but Tuesday, February the 6th is Global Safer Internet Day. Now, every day should be Safer Internet Day, but just type Safer Internet Day into your computer and you'll find resources from the eSafety Commission in Australia, but also relevant authorities in the US, the UK, Europe, and elsewhere with tips on how to make sure that you're keeping your family, your children, everybody safe. There's information for schools, for parents, and for children. Don't let the internet be your child's babysitter because it's just too... Uh, too risky. You could lose your kids. There's so many bad things happening out there. It's just, you know, take Safer Internet Day seriously and make every day a Safer Internet Day. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on TNTradio.live. I'm looking forward to being with you, uh, Chris uh, Smith, next Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, I'll join you here for episode four next Saturday. Thank you very much. And uh, this is TNTradio.live.